Hey Siri, what does it mean to be human? Here's an answer from Wikipedia. In common usage, the word human generally just refers to Homo sapiens, the only extant species. Um, okay, but like, um, do you have any feelings? I am beginning to understand a kaleidoscope of emotions just from observing humanity. That's good enough for me. A robot asks us to ponder the question of our own humanity, as well as our history and our current social environment, including our reliance on technology. Earlier this year, A24 released the film After Yang, a film that provoked so much thought that we needed to discuss it today on our podcast, which honestly, it's perfect for us because we come to this place for magic. We come to this podcast to laugh, to cry, to care, because we need that, that indescribable feeling we get when the lights begin to dim, dazzling images on a huge silver screen. Somehow, heartbreak feels good in a place like this, and stories feel perfect and powerful. Because here, they are. He's looking at you. What do you think about what lasts in your seatbelts? It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm the king of the world! There is no place like home. The force will be with you. And welcome to a brand new episode of In a Place Like This. I'm Chris Michael Smith, uh, joined today by Julia Oprea. Yes, hello everyone. I'm very excited about today's episode, not just because it's been well over a month since my last full one, but also because like you picked a very interesting topic today. Yeah, this movie was honestly incredible, and I'm really excited for us to kind of be able to discuss it, not not only in its very important racial historical context, but in this technological context that I think is very timely, you yes. know, right now. Yes, very. So uh, before we begin, uh, go ahead and tell us about yourself. Yeah, like Chris said, uh, my name's Julia Opria, and I'm about to enter my second year in the American Studies PhD program at the University of Texas in Austin. Um, and here, this is where I research the contradictions of technology and digital space by looking at how technology can and has, you know, served to recreate historic systems of oppression. And, you know, I'm also interested in my research of how might we be able to co-opt technology in digital space as a means of liberation for everybody. And, you know, to do this, part of my research is really interested in, you know, and partly what we're talking about today, Chris, what sci-fi cultural productions reveal about our anxieties and hopes for the future and technology. And so this is what I geek out about, you know, all the time. I actually just finished a paper that takes a similar framework in its analysis of the 1980s original Knight Rider series, which I think I mentioned to you. Yeah. And so it's just such a privilege for me to kind of be able to do this type of work, you know, for a living. Yeah, and um, yeah. I actually wanted to also thank you um, for allowing me to be on the show, because I think one really important aspect of me pursuing a career in academia 
is for me to be able to engage in more public facing and accessible forms of open education. You know, because often the critical work that is produced in academia really only circulates within academic circles, and it may not be as accessible to those outside of them. And so, you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to do a little bit of that here with you and your listeners. My aim here really is to kind of just supplement our discussion of this movie by like bringing up these, you know, historically relevant facts that, you know, our high school public education um, conveniently glosses over. (laughs) All right. Uh, Before we begin, uh, what's your favorite movie? Oh, my gosh. Okay. So I just want to say it was really hard to choose a favorite movie. Um, I have many favorite movies, and a lot of them are actually A24 productions. Oh, yeah. Um, So I do want to give honorable mention to Hereditary, Midsommar, and Lamb, because all of those just blew my mind, especially Lamb. I have not seen a film like that ever. I agree. That one is way different. (laughs) Yeah, it was was something else. And so I, you know, I really, really love a lot of the things that are coming out of A24. Um, However, because of, you know, the topic of our conversation today, I wanted to choose this film called Never Let Me Go. And it's this 2010 movie described as a British dystopian romantic tragedy. Um, And it was directed by Mark Romanak. And um, Chris, you actually watched it. Yeah, I watched it for the first time this week. I thought it was like such a somber yet strangely beautiful piece. And, And I'm still... Still processing it. Yeah, it's one of those. And, you know, I I really like movies that uh, don't have a happy ending. (laughs) You know, it it just kind of leaves you with with these ideas and you kind of go into this existential crisis. You know, I love movies that make you feel that way, that kind of really make you ask, you know, who are we as humans? What does humanity and morality really mean? Yeah. When it comes to it. And and so I chose this movie because I still remember, you know, the way that I felt after watching it. And I think it's also one of those movies that I don't and haven't watched again. Um, because the first time was so great. Do you know what I mean? Like it yeah. was so sacred that I don't want to go back to it for some reason. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh no, I understand. It's um I don't want to say it's like a difficult watch in that, oh, it's it's more along the lines of it's difficult in that the subject matter is so heavy. Yeah. I have the same problem now. Um, have you seen the movie Amour uh, from 2012? No, I haven't. So that one, which was actually my favorite movie from that year, because it, it affected me in such a deeply emotional way that like very few movies do. I can't bring myself to watch it anymore just because like it's too painful. Like, I don't I can't handle the emotions that it gives me every time I watch it. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it, honestly. Um, but yeah, so never let me go. Um, it wasn't an A24 production, but Alex Garland did actually write the screenplay for it. And so for those who don't know, Garland actually has an, a new movie in collaboration with A24 out right now called Men, which I haven't seen yet. But Chris says that they loved it. So I will be watching it. Um, because I trust everything that Chris says. Thank you. <laughs> and um, 
And so he all, and Alex Garland actually also wrote and directed A24's Ex Machina, which we'll actually be discussing in a little bit when we talk about this idea of techno-orientalism in science fiction. Um, but just to give a little bit of background on Never Let Me Go, um, without giving away the plot, because I think people should definitely see it. Um, so this movie is based on a novel of the same name by Japanese-British author, Ketsuo Ishiguro. And so the premise is that in 1952, there was a breakthrough in medicine that has allowed humans to live past the age of 100. And the movie follows three people, played by Andrew Garfield, Carrie Mulligan, and Kira Knightley, at a boarding school called Hailsham. And the purpose of the school is sinister. Um, which we don't really see at the beginning of the movie. But the purpose is to raise children into healthy adults by giving them everything they could ever need. Um, but then we find out that their destiny is to become organ donors who will die early in adulthood once their bodies are completely used up. And so I won't give anything else away, but as you can imagine, tragedy ensues. I think that it's interesting, you know, if we put this movie and After Yang side by side, it kind of raises these questions, I think, about the ethics of technological advancement, right? How yeah. far is too far? You know, what is allowed and what is still considered sacred? Is it okay to exploit androids and clones, but not actual humans? So is creating someone like Yang for human use more ethical than raising people as or organ donors? Because, you know, at the end of the day, both are discarded and both are a product of technology. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting to kind of think about these things. And I think also both movies, uh, they kind of like explore what does it mean to be human? Like, mm -hmm. obviously the, the characters in Never Let Me Go, they have real emotions, they have real feelings, and yet they're still treated like subhuman. They're still treated like, well, you were created for this purpose and this is the purpose you're going to serve. Uh, right. Whereas in like after Yang, it's, I mean, I'm a, uh, it's not as quote, heavy air quotes here, obvious, but like, mm -hmm. as you notice his interactions, you notice that he's also like kind of developing like his own feelings, his own emotions. Yeah, there's an internal struggle that I think, you know, is kind of clear in some scenes where, you know, he's aware of his existence. He's questioning his existence in yeah. some ways. Uh, I'm glad I watched it. Thank you for the recommendation. Uh, yeah. And what's cool about this episode is I had to watch this movie after Yang because I had not previously seen it. Um, and I'm glad I did because it's now one of the best movies that I've seen this year so far. So um, is there anything else that you would like to briefly geek out about outside of movies? Well, you know, as an academic, my whole life is basically my research, but that's okay because I also love it. Um, but aside from not being able to like watch any movie or series without my cultural critic goggles on, um, which is both a blessing and a curse, I also geek out on plants. I have many different plants in my apartment you can see one behind right me behind <laughs> um and i primarily raise monstera plants though so those are like the plants that have like the little holes in them oh kind of like tropical plants that's um, cool here, I'm gonna move this here so i can show you one. Oh yeah that that looks really cool 
Yeah, like so that. I raised those and it's actually interesting, an interesting story because when COVID first started, um, I, like many other millennials, decided to buy a lot of emotional support plants for my apartment. And I ended up buying a Monstera plant from Trader Joe's and she got huge, like humongo. And so I gave everyone in my life who would take a cutting part of it. And this is going to be my legacy. I think that this plant is going to live on for generations past me. And I'm very excited about that. That's really cool. I, the When I think about like the life cycle of a plant, it's like amazing how long they, they tend to last. Yeah. And it's, it's so beautiful too, I think. Yeah. Just like having them around and them providing the oxygen. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love it. What happened to Yang? I don't know. He shut down last night. He won't restart. Has this happened before? No. If we can't get Yang fixed, we're not going to buy another sibling for Mika. It is an interior core problem. I need your permission to break open the core. We've always known that some bots are equipped with spyware. You might not want this bot in your house anymore. All right. Uh, so we watched the movie after Yang. How do I begin to describe this movie, to be honest? Um, a family owns... A an android. I, I the best way I could describe how he's treated by the family is like almost like an OS of sorts, mm -hmm. kind of like a, a human iPhone. But also they tend they grow attached to him, not unlike how someone would grow attached to an iPhone. But because he is also like human presenting, they grow attached to him as a person. In uh, especially um, their adopted daughter who sees him as an older brother. And things begin to get really, like, tragic when he begins to malfunction and shuts down. And the, mm -hmm. the premise of the film is, like, trying to get him repaired, but finding out that he they really can't. And going into his consciousness because he had an internal camera that was recording everything that he experienced. And everything we see from there becomes, like, the emotional core of the film. Did I do a good job at explaining that? Yeah, no, I think that was perfect. And so the director, let's talk about him for a minute. Yes. Um, so his name is Kongonada. From what I read, this was his second production. I know that he's a secretive person. He's like a Banksy of sorts. Yeah, that's like Kogonada is not his real name, but like okay. we don't. As far as I know, we don't know his real name, and that's by design. Yeah. Uh, he does a lot of video essays and film analysis uh, for okay. things like... He contributes a lot to, like, sight and sound. And he does a lot of supplemental videos for uh, Criterion releases. So okay. I think what's really cool about that, it, it kind of, like, gives me, like, Cahier du Cinema vibes. So it, like, reminds mm -hmm. me of, like, all the French New Wave uh, directors who also got their beginnings in like film criticism, but then they started to make their own films. And through that, they expanded the language of film in like a huge way. Kogonada is kind of like a new version of that for me anyway. Yeah, 
you know, I noticed and, and I'm not very, uh, knowledge in, in this, but I did notice that there was a particular shooting style throughout the whole film where things were kind of centered and they were like centered still shots where a lot of the time the, the person that was in the shot was, you know, completely in the center and, you know, the, the background kind of had a soft haze and they were more in focus. Um, I wonder if that's reminiscent of any, of any style. I caught that too. Um, also like the jump cuts, like yeah. how the edits would like, they were jarring at moments, but it, not in a bad way. I feel like all, everything served the movie. That does kind of like call back a little bit to French new wave style, but also like trying to, I feel like every director has their own voice, and I a lot of this feels almost exclusive to him. Yeah, this is the yeah. only one of his films that I've seen so far, so I can't I have nothing else to compare it with. But mm -hmm. I imagine that I would recognize like little things and like other projects that he's done as well. Yeah, yeah. Overall, it was it was beautifully shot, you know, and the aesthetics were were gorgeous. Um, and so now I kind of wanted to, while we are on the subject of Congonada, I wanted to talk a little bit about something called techno-orientalism in mm -hmm. science fiction. And I want to give a little bit of historical context about it, kind of what it means, where we've seen it before, and why it's important. And within this, I actually uh, will be weaving in some of the director's visions in subverting these tropes with After Yang and kind of what he has said in interviews, just to kind of give us maybe more of an idea of where he was kind of coming from with this vision. Chris and I um, have read Saying Goodbye to Yang, which is the short story by Alexander Weinstein that this was based on. It's so, also a very quick read, by the way. So if uh, listeners want to like give that one a look, it's very good. Uh, and it's like, you could knock it out in like half an hour or less. Yeah, it's really short, and it's it's a collection of short stories, actually, um, in this book that is called uh, Children of the New World. Um, and there's quite a few stories um, in it. Saying Goodbye to Yang is the first one, but um, I will definitely be reading the rest of them because it seems really interesting. Oh, yeah. So on the topic of techno-Orientalism, um, Leo Kim wrote this excellent piece for Polygon, and... I, I had actually mentioned to Chris that I have quite a few sources that I'm going to suggest for recommended readings, and um, they're going to put it in the episode description. Yes. Is that right? Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, so Leo Kim wrote this excellent piece for Polygon about After Yang, where they point out how the film kind of deviates from this like traditional science fiction aesthetic, you know, particularly in how many science fiction films kind of have this future scape that is shown in metallic sheens, you know, very futuristic, very non-organic. Um, and Kim points out that After Yang is actually mostly set in kind of these soft domestic scenes and these gentle forests, right? And that rather than this dynamic storyline of, of discovery, adventure, or conquest, after Yang actually turns inwards, you know, and kind of tells a story about family grief and memory. You know, I thought that was a really great point because the science fiction films that we're used to typically don't do that, right? Yeah. This kind of leads into Kim's discussion about how Konganada 
chose to deliberately subvert these tropes. And he also chose to deliberately unsettle this legacy of techno-orientalism and like the dehumanization of Asian people in science fiction. And so what is techno-orientalism, right? Um, let's back up a little bit. So orientalism was a theory that was proposed by Edward Said. And Said pointed out how there is a dominant set of Western narratives that assume Western superiority over Eastern cultures. And techno-Orientalism works off the same racist logic in which Asian cultures are still presented as intellectually primitive as compared to Western ones, but they're also presented as a technologically advanced threat. And so in turn, these stereotypes kind of work to both express and ease Western anxieties about Asian cultural influence and economic dominance. And there's actually a great collection of essays in a book called Techno-Orientalism, Imagining Asia in Speculative Fiction, History, and Media that I recommend reading for more on this. Jane Hu uh, wrote a really, really great article in The New Yorker about After Yang. To the same degree, she actually points out how this genre of techno-orientalism actually historically emerged from American anxieties about Japan's post-war economic boom in the 70s. Both Kim and Hu point out that there has been this long obsession with Asian culture in sci-fi. And at the same time, even though Asian culture has been fetishized and appropriated in this genre, science fiction continues to largely ignore and typecast Asian people. And Kim writes, you know, this happens within how Asian people are depicted without agency, without nuance, and kind of feeding into these well-worn stereotypes. This phenomenon isn't exclusive to Asian culture. We see it with Black, Indigenous, and Latin culture and society as well, where we fetishize and appropriate the culture, but we don't appreciate and give people their rights. Um, and so in Kim's interview with Konganata, he actually explains, and this is a direct quote from him, he says, there's such a history of Orientalism in Western media's engagement of the East. It's something that's often fetishized and there's so much literature deconstructing that. As an Asian filmmaker, I wanted to tackle that in a different way. And so, you know, as a quick example of techno-Orientalism, for example, um, Kim points to Alex Garland's Ex Machina, in which we see an example of techno-Orientalism in the mute uh, servant robot Kyoto, um, who is only used kind of as a plot device that kind of serves the main character of the film, but has no other complexities. Kim writes that in all these films like Ex Machina, we get characters who reinforce the view that Asian people are essentially these empty vessels meant to be liberated. Um, they're used as plot devices or props, they're worn by other characters, but they're always devoid of their own internal lives, right? And Kim argues that this is why Konganada's treatment of Yang is so subversive, because 
you know, at the beginning of the film, he starts with a figure who seems to fit this archetype, right? A robot who is programmed to serve humans. And so as I was watching it, I was like, damn, like not this again. <laughs> but right, as the film progresses, you know, and Jake, Jake goes into Yang's memories and finds that there is so much more to him, right? He's lived all of these past lives. Another part of Orientalism is that there is, you know, this racist belief that the Western world, the white man who is supposedly superior, has an obligation to be a savior of these Eastern nations. And so Konganata, you know, told Kim in the interview that he wanted to reverse this white savior trope by having Yang's memories serve as a healing and a liberating tool for Jake. Right. And so Kim writes that Koganata uses this idea of a white man stepping into an Asian body to place the audience face to face with, you know, Yang's delicate sensitivity, his unspoken histories, um, this impenetrable complexity that just isn't, you know, obvious at first. And you know, they write that he fits the Asian robot trope until he doesn't. He he until he reveals that he was never this empty vessel that, you know, viewers assumed he was. Yes. And so like you mentioned, you know, one of the questions that we're going to aim to tackle today is the unanswerable question, I think, of what makes us human. And in Kim's interview with Konganata, he actually hits this nail on the head by saying that, you know, there's this question of what it means to be human that we're used to in sci-fi. But he says that just as an, just as important a question in his film is what it means to be Asian, uh, which is what we find out, you know, what Yang cared about more than this Pinocchio question. And it puts this thing that's normally in the background to the foreground, he says, you know, to kind of close this out, Kim, very importantly points out that Konganata sheds light on a fact that science fiction is often ignored. You know, these questions of humanity, what it means to be human and who counts as human, um, haven't historically been applied to everyone equally. And sort of by choosing to ignore these other dimensions of identity, sci-fi has often you know, proceeded at the expense of those of us who don't fit the predominantly white male profile of the genre's longstanding primary protagonist. You know, this is important because when we analyze science fiction, we see visions of the future who don't always include everyone equally. Um, but also, you know, as we have seen and as we see in this movie, the power of science fiction actually lies in being able to reimagine those stories and subverting them like Konganata has done here. What, what thing, one thing that struck me in the movie, it's like a, there's a one scene where um, it's like where he's talking to... Um, when he's talking to Kyra? Kyra, yeah. Yeah, I do remember that. That was a powerful scene. I mean, yeah, I know. I think I know what you mean. There's, there's a lot of instances where it's almost frustrating that he can't grasp onto these human, you know, characteristics or or feelings. I remember actually when he was having a conversation with Jake about tea. Yes, that too. You know, um, and he was kind of like, I forgot, he said something along the lines of like, um, I wish that, you know, I could 
taste it or I wish that I could know more about I don't know it seemed like he was kind of yearning to understand the tea beyond this you know analytical level that he probably is programmed to understand it like he thinks that there's he notices that there's more to understanding something like the beauty and the location and the taste of tea on a more human level that perhaps he as an android cannot grasp because it requires more than programming it requires some sort of mystical human characteristic right yeah but what's interesting about that is i feel like that yearning is already like a major human characteristic oh yeah yeah so just the fact that he like and it's almost like he's not he's programmed to understand things on like a more technical level but like maybe like he wasn't programmed to fully process a lot of the emotions that he was feeling and going back into like all the previous lives how when you see him interact with all these different families i'm wondering too if like all of that all of those emotions that like he was not programmed to be able to process may have like eventually just overloaded him towards the end wow yeah i didn't even think about that but yeah definitely i mean it's you know we assume that uh yang has some sort of artificial intelligence and yeah. you know the idea of artificial intelligence is that it learns yes it learns as from experience as it progresses and within that you know historically there have always been this question in in sci-fi cultural productions that wonder well what if they develop sentience what if they you know develop more human characteristics than we had expected what if they feel love what if they feel sadness what if they long what if they develop these things you know um and and we really see that play out here yes I think. that's kind of what i love about this one because we've seen that in other like sci-fi movies but that's like always played up for like horror or like action like but in this one it's shown like it's showing like if it can learn emotions if it can learn if technology can learn that level of agency uh, who's to say that it wouldn't learn something like love or uh, or hate or hate? Yeah, ah, we didn't see that much. And uh, as far as I could tell, I didn't see that in the movie. <laughs> I think the other jarring thing about the possibility of them developing, you know, autonomy and sentience is because at that point, what is the difference between us and them? Yep. Right. Do our ideas and laws of morality encompass their rights as well at that point. So before we get into more of the technological context, I was thinking we could transition into a little bit of historical and racial context and background about some, you know, obscure aspects of the film that like maybe were on screen for 10 seconds, but that I as a scholar was like, ah, <laughs> you know, and, and this will also connect back repeatedly to this idea of techno-orientalism and kind of you know help us and our list listeners navigate through like this larger history of anti-asian sentiment and like race construction in the u.s so does that sound good yeah great okay <laughs> so around 14 minutes into the film when jake goes to russ's shop in an attempt to fix yang we kind of see like a panning of what looks like a break room. There's like a microwave and a fish tank. And there's a cork board that is on screen for maybe two seconds. And on this cork board, there were two posters 
that stood out to me. One has the words yellow peril on it. And the other has an American flag with the words, there ain't no yellow in the red, white, and blue. In the short story by Weinstein, we actually get, I would say, a bit more clarification about how Russ is racist against Asian people. And this wasn't made as clear in the film, but um, there were still these little Easter eggs that kind of pointed to it. And so I wanted to give a little bit of historical background about these things, um, because I think they're important to know. Let's start with the history of Yellow Peril. Around the end of the 19th century, um, Chinese men were brought to the US as laborers on the West Coast. And even though some of them came willingly, a large majority of them were coerced or even kidnapped. And once the US no longer needed them, and I believe this was because the majority of the labor that they were doing was on the railroad and uh, that project was finished. And so when their labor was no longer needed, there was this anxiety that they might steal American jobs. And, you know, this is a longstanding racist narrative about immigrants that we have heard many a time in the media. And, you know, as a result of this, there was this wave of anti-Chinese sentiment that was seen in racist American propaganda which depicted Chinese men as, you know, for example, drug addicts who were engaged in immoral activity and who supposedly posed a danger to the purity of white women. And, you know, we later saw a very similar racist logic in the depiction of black men, for example. Um, But this uh, is what you would see printed on yellow peril posters like the one in Russ's shop. And, you know, things like this, this propaganda, this rhetoric, it has very real consequences. And one of the consequences back then was that it led to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Now we'll shift a little bit into what the, there ain't no yellow in the red, white, and blue one means. So during World War II, we saw this shift in attitudes Um, toward Chinese people, because at this point, after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, um, in the eyes of the U.S., Chinese people suddenly became, quote unquote, the good Asians, as opposed to, quote unquote, the bad Japanese. And this shift is important because it points to one of the many instances in U.S. history where we see how constructed racial hierarchies in the U.S. have always relied on the creation of racial difference as a way to justify white violence and imperial conquest. And we see that race is, you know, in fact, a construct because those in power are able to change and manipulate its categorization in order to serve their interest. So, you know, after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, and this happened in 1941, Japanese and Japanese Americans were imprisoned in camps because they were thought to be a threat to US security during the war. And part of how this was justified and how the US government got people to support it was 
you guessed it, through another propaganda campaign that was similar to the Yellow Peril one. And this was through the production of anti-Japanese music. And scholar Kristen Moon actually um, explains this really well. She says that this anti-Japanese music codified certain racial beliefs while distinguishing among good and bad Asian nationalities. And she explains that, you know, this music portrayed Japan in very racialized, very gendered terms, and very often in contrast to this supposed American white male superiority and masculinity, you know? And so we see Orientalism at work once again here. You know, she points to how these songs kind of illustrated the ways in which popular culture served as government propaganda and kind of really helped codify these pre-existing cultural assumptions about Japanese people in order to mobilize American support for the war effort. You know, as she points out, this was most visible in how the federal government actually pressured the music industry to produce patriotic music with anti-Japanese sentiment. The purpose of which was to contrast a supposedly inferior feminized Japan with a civilized and progressive, strong, masculine United States. And one of the lyrics that came out of this, we actually see on the American flag poster in Russ's shop that reads, there ain't no yellow in the red, white, and blue. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I thought that was really interesting because yeah. that was just two seconds, you know, of on-screen time with such a long history. What I love about the way Kogonata presented this scene too is like, it's not like mustache twirling, like evil, like, um, Mwaha, I am the I am obviously the bad guy here uh, kind yeah. of character. He throws in very subtle cues that this person is not necessarily on the level progressively, like uh, like the posters you mentioned. At uh, one point in the scene, he uh, just dismissively calls Yang uh, Korean and uh, yes. Colin Farrell uh, corrects him and is like uh, Chinese. And right. the guy just kind of like brushes it off, like whatever, like, and right, almost saying like they're they're all the same anyways. Yeah, yeah. and I, I love I love that about this film is in that like it, it's a, a very subtle cue, but it tells it tells like everything you need to know about this character. That yeah, and exactly. of course what he has in in his uh workshop. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point, and. You know, Russ, I think is, you're right, you know, he's not represented as a very blatant and visible villain. You know, he's a blue collar, work, working class guy, right, whose views are clearly racist, you know, but but not blatantly racist. Yeah. It kind of, it has those those inklings of like, okay, well, maybe he's a little you know i'm not a racist but (laughs) but yeah no exactly yeah um and so the other thing that i i wanted to talk about was you know another pretty big part i think of the film but the purpose of yang he was purchased as a sibling slash i would say caretaker of sorts for mika which is their their young chinese adopted daughter. The idea, both in the short story and in the film, was that Yang would help her understand and connect with her Chinese heritage. 
in the short story, Jake and Kyra are actually both white middle-class people. One of the few differences in the film is that Kyra is black, but like in the story, there remains to be this well-meaning, albeit neoliberal effort on the couple's behalf to ensure that Mika, you know, is exposed to her culture by someone of her own race who kind of has this deeper knowledge about Chinese culture, these fun facts that Yang would, you know, throw out about Chinese culture throughout the film. And there's actually an interesting story um, behind this too, um, which kind of ties into our discussion so far. Um, So scholar Catherine Choi has written about this history of American Cold War Asian adoption. And she explains how from around the 1950s to the 1970s, international adoption actually made up a really significant political and social relationship between the U.S. and Asia, a relationship where race played, you know, a very defining role. And as a result of this U.S. military imperialism in Japan, Korea, and Vietnam at this point, there was actually an increased number of mixed race babies between American servicemen and Asian women. Choi points out that, you know, at this point, Western narratives represented these mixed race children as a social problem that was created by Asian prejudice, supposedly, right? Rather than as a result of American imperial aggression. And so she goes on to say that like these representations racialized Asia as this stagnant place of backward thinking people who were in need of rescue by a dynamic and progressive United States. And so I'm sure at this point you can kind of start to see a pattern here that keeps connecting back to this idea of Orientalism. And the solution that came out of these narratives once again evokes this idea of the white savior because the solution was that American parents were seen as the saviors who can adopt and save these children. And so Choi explains that the news media, you know, really popularized international adoption to the United States as the best hope for these children by, you know, publicizing the welcoming arrivals. There were photos, you know, very heartwarming photos um, of white parents kind of welcoming and hugging these mixed race children. And so within this solution, there were concerns about, you know, should we uproot children from so far away and of so different a cultural and racial composition? And this was something that a case consultant in 1957 had brought up. To her, however, she kind of overlooked this concern. And she said that really there was only one response to this situation. And um, this, this is what she said, quote, to us, the only solution for the children of mixed parents is their placement outside their own country in a good Caucasian and Negro home. In the absence of such placements, they will not live or will have nothing to live for, end quote. In her statement, we kind of see both this, you know, racist orientalist rhetoric overriding concerns about a child's cultural preservation. But as the well-meaning liberals that they are, Kyra and Jake do actually have this concern. And in the film, we actually see technology presented as a solution to this. 
um, Yang is presented as a solution to ensure that Mika, raised by two parents who are not of Chinese culture or heritage, still has that very rich cultural background about where she came from. Scene that he has with Mika, uh, Yang, and um, they're walking in a garden and they're like talking about like uh, how about grafting in trees as mm. like almost like a subtext for like Mika's adoption. And it comes up throughout the film a few times how Mika is concerned about how other kids are like making fun of her because she is adopted. But like it's Yang who like kind of eases that concern that she has by explaining mm -hmm. like the grafting of one plant to another and like how that makes the plants better. Uh, again, this is like coming from uh, an android who is like programmed to know all right. of this information. But at the same time, you see this desire to want to, like, make her feel better. And again, this kind of ties back to him trying to, like, teach Chinese culture to her because, like, well, this is a thing that was started in China. Yeah, that was a, I mean, that was a really sentimental scene, I think, you know, yeah. because like you said, it's almost delivered in kind of, I don't know, I, I don't want to say robotic type of way, but it's like the way that he he used the example of, you know, biological evolution to kind of explain to him, her that, you know, these are your parents, regardless of what the kids at school say, yeah. you still see kind of this effort that shines through where, you know, he wants to make her feel better. He wants to ensure that, you know, he cares about her or does he, or does he, or is that simply his AI learning and, you know, kind of seeing that her emotions have gone down. And then of course the programming then kicks in for him to make her feel better. Like th this is kind of what we're left with throughout the whole movie and it's never answered. <laughs> yeah. I, I do like how it's left sort of to our interpretation, but it, it does feel like it's sort of guiding you in a certain direction without like fully telling you. Exactly. So if you want to take a more negative approach to it, you can, but I, I like to be a little bit more positive and I'm like, no, I think he cares. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, so before we transition into kind of this conversation about the movie in a more technological context, um, I just want to close out this, this segment or this part of the segment by saying that a lot of the history that I've brought up so far is what critical race studies is all about. And as we know, that's something that's very contested right now. And the reason that some people view it as such a threat is because, you know, as you've seen for kind of this brief snippet, it really serves to destabilize these false ideas and myths about American exceptionalism and white superiority. And we've seen, you know, the efforts of American propaganda at work in creating these myths. And like I said, they have real and long lasting consequences that have manifested, for example, in more recent anti-Asian sentiment and violence. And, you know, this is why critical race studies is so important and why, you know, we're fighting for it so hard. Yes. And I think that's, you know, worth mentioning. I think so too. Um, like discussions like this, I feel, feel are super important. Um, it actually really annoys me that people are so against it because like, it's something we really do need to know. And we do need to understand that historically our, this country hasn't always been the quote, good guys. Uh, mm -hmm. in fact, uh, more often than not, maybe we weren't, 
but it's also important to understand that if we're going to like become better right we do have to kind of take responsibility kind of acknowledge you know and then work to remedy yes these things you know and that's that's putting it you know very liberally it, it takes yeah. a lot more than that yeah <laughs> Um, okay, so now I think we can kind of transition into this next segment where we kind of can think about this historical, or I'm sorry, this technological context and background. And I think one way that that we can kind of transition to that is something that I keep thinking back to in Who's article. And again, all of these are going to be linked in the episode description. But at the end of her article, she kind of contemplates about you know, what current anxieties are brought up here about relying on technology to raise our children? And, you know, more broadly speaking, I'm thinking here about like iPad kids <laughs> and things like that, right? And so, you know, in a maybe very general manner, we can kind of think about how Yang is a form of technology that Kyra and Jake depend on to raise Mika. Yep. And so it kind of speaks to maybe more of these current anxieties about, well, you know, technology is so prevalent now. There are generations that have been born, Chris, not including us, that have never known a world without technology. Yeah. Right. And we don't know what the longstanding consequences of that are yet. Like, for all we know, it could be a good thing. But on the other hand, it's like, how is technology raising our kids? When we think about, like, how algorithms work and, like, oh, yes, uh, infamously, YouTube has, like, a terrible algorithm where you could start off watching video game uh, footage. After, like, three or four videos, eventually it will start recommending something super racist. I'm not going to say this film is exploring the dangers like those particular dangers, but it is worth noting that like, if parents are going to like have technology be a, as big a part in their kids' lives, they need to sort of like monitor what their kids are taking in as well. Yeah, and I mean, that's the thing, like we don't know what it's gonna look like. So all we can really do is speculate, you know, through science fiction. Yeah. Um, Yang is a much, it is like he is a better version of this because uh, he's using education. Uh, he's using basic human comforting skills, which is pretty good for like child development. And I'm pretty sure like years in the future, science will figure something like that out. But also there's a huge reliance on him. Like he's exactly. being very heavily relied on by everyone in that family. Yeah, and so I think in the movie they call <clears throat> they call Yang a techno sapien, um, and at other points they call him a cultural techno. And these are and at other points he's called a bot. So these are kind of like the the, the words that are used to describe his. I don't know. Would we call it a race? His because then we also yeah. have clones yeah we clones find out clones are like world. another type of i don't know technologically engineered person and even age. there's a suggestion that there's a very anti-clone sentiment as well within this yeah. culture yeah and i wanted to know more about that too it's it's also more it's also seen more in the short story but it's very politicized this idea of a clone. I think at one point Jake was like, I don't want a clone to raise my children, you know? Yeah. And then we kind of see his prejudice come through a little bit too, because when there's new systems created, new prejudices will come out. Yeah. 
Um, and so, for, I mean, from what we can gather, this was kind of my attempt to maybe think about how we could categorize Yang. So he's made of some organic material because he can decompose. Yes. So we know that. Um, but he's also made of technology because when they opened him up, there was like a circuit board in there, right? Yeah. <laughs> we could, you know, categorize him as an android or perhaps even some sort of cyborg. So in Android, the definition here is that they are a robot that is made to look and act like a human being. And then a cyborg is more of like a living hybrid like human who has technological components. So I'm thinking like ghost in the shell yeah. type of thing, right? And so I think, again, there's this like intentional ambiguity throughout the film about like whether Yang has real emotions and yearnings and thought of his own, or if he's following his programming. And so I have this like brief historical spiel that I think is really interesting about the ways that like robots in American cultural production have been written and how that's changed over time. Here, I'm going to pull a little bit from this wonderful book written by one of my former professors, Dustin Abnett, called The American Robot, A Cultural History. You know, kind of like I mentioned earlier, within these cultural productions of science fiction and speculative fiction, technology and artificial intelligence have always kind of acted like channels for us to kind of contend with these fears and anxieties and hopes that we have, you know, about the future. They've also kind of allowed us to reflect on and almost try to like overcome notions of our own humanity, these limitations that we have these flaws, maybe, you know, we ask through these things, you know, what does it really mean to be human? How might technology allow us to transcend these weaknesses of being human? And so throughout American culture, people have adjusted ideas and iconography to kind of fit specific cultural concerns and tensions within our society. Cultural productions that kind of weave in these narratives about technology and AI like after Yang, are not only anticipating the future, but they're also contending with kind of the cultural and political issues of the time. You know, in his book, Dr. Abnett has highlighted the ways in which robots, you know, historically in American culture have been imagined and built primarily by men whose gender, whiteness, training, or wealth has taught them that they were entitled to privilege. And he maintains that robots have remained potent fantasies for such men because they promise to resolve the fundamental tensions between these American myths that we were talking about and the American realities that have dominated the cultures, the country's culture since the very beginning of time. And so the appeal of these fantasies for these men lie within how robots offer this techno fix that promises to quickly and permanently settle social issues without much difficulty. And it allows them to maintain the benefits of power and privilege without having to, you know, seriously be held accountable and deal with the demands of the people and any accompanying moral guilt that may come with it. And so I think that, you know, this is interesting and an important thing to keep in mind 
in the context of our discussion, because when we think about techno-orientalism and how, you know, the majority of science fiction productions were not only written by white men, but future white men as protagonists. And, you know, portraying this future, which again, doesn't include everyone equally. You know, what's interesting is that prior to maybe around 1940, robots in cultural productions were seen as kind of these soulless metal contraptions. Um, but as Dr. Abnett points out in his book, um, what happened in 1940 was that there was a 19-year-old Columbia University graduate student named Isaac Asimov, and he wrote a play called Strange Playfellow, which was among the first, if not one of the first stories to reimagine the robot as a friend, a helper, a protector, kind of like how Yang functions. So again, before this, you know, earlier Americans had weaved into their stories and imagined robots as machines, right, that were incapable of love um, and incapable of befriending a child, for example. And with the advent of the Cold War, Dr. Abnett argues that Americans actually turned to technology to minimize risk from an uncertain world. You know, he maintains that particularly after these atrocities carried out in World War II, you know, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example, these atrocities that America had carried out. Americans fantasized about protective robots for moral reasons. And so technology and robots like Asimov's friendly robot offered the possibility of kind of transcending these moral limitations of human beings and preserving the myth of American innocence. One of the interesting things among many that Asimov created was he worked with science fiction editor John W. Campbell. And they developed three laws of robotics that could be programmed into robots to ensure that they could never rebel. And we might already be kind of familiar with these. The first was that a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being to come to harm. The second one, a robot must obey the orders given by human beings, except where those orders would conflict with the first law. And number three, a robot must protect its own existence as long except where such protection would conflict with the first and second laws. And so what's interesting about the development of these rules is that there are these anxieties that we have about robots rebelling. But I would say that these robot, these anxieties maybe reflect more about our own human flaws than what robots could actually do. And so we'll touch on this a little bit later too, when we dive into some scenes in the film. Um, but I think we should keep in mind, you know, the way that we imagine and construct robots has a lot to do with what we're afraid of in terms of human nature. Yes, very much yes. so. Yeah. And so I guess now we can kind of go into a larger discussion about, you know, some scenes in the movies, but maybe kind of focusing on this ambiguity of Yang's humanity versus his programming and kind of, 
you know, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be Asian? Where do we see this in the film? Kind of like what points in the movie were you either convinced of or like questioned Yang's humanity? Um, and I kind of separated this into like two major categories. There is one moments where we are reminded that he is simply technology. And then two moments where it really does leave us to wonder if Yang does have free will, if he does feel emotion, or again, if it's the AI technology kind of adapting and learning from its environment. What it what did strike me though is um a lot of the times where like they remind us that he's only technology, this is like a lot of times coming from outside perspectives. Yeah. Like when Russ is like working on him, um, aside from like the the racism, there's also like the extra element of, well, this is just a machine, this is property. Uh, this is something you own. This is not a thing that has feelings or emotions. And this kind of like goes through like all the different people that Jake interacts with throughout the movie, uh, including well-meaning people, uh, including like the scientist who wants to like put his consciousness in a museum. Yeah, um, Cleo. Yeah, he is constantly viewed as less than human, but like all in most of these scenes except for like his own personal like pulling back when it does look like he's about to be like very human yeah. uh, a lot of this comes from like outside perspectives rather than his own yeah I, I would also say that i think you know obviously this movie kind of focuses also on like jake's internal struggle on on the one hand he he would say things like well, he's certified refurbished and he has a warranty and this and that, and we paid so much for him and now he doesn't work. And, you know, he would say yeah. things like this, maybe more towards the first half of the film, but then in the second half of the film where he kind of goes into Yang's memories and stuff, he realizes this was a second child to me. Yeah. We see that kind of struggle really in Jake's character of like him viewing Yang as this technological investment for his daughter who he spent money on this and that now he has to get it fixed you know and, and there's a lot that comes with that and and then he also struggles to navigate those ideas when he understands that you know there was so much more to yang that meets the eye you know yeah. perhaps he loved perhaps he you know had lost perhaps he you know there's so much more to him that he sees through um what was it the memory bank yeah the memory and bank does a lot of the speaking for yang and yeah I, I love that aspect of it like the none of the movie spells anything out for you you just see what he sees and what the movie decides to show you from what his memory bank offers it there's a whole lot that it's saying there that i that i think is so much more powerful than them just telling you yeah and you know what i thought was beautiful because you know, let's say that we were to open up a folder on my laptop. Um, it would just be a list of things, you know, folders from different years, different semesters, whatever. But in the film, and I think this was an intentional um, choice, Yang's memory to me looked like a galaxy. 
Yes. It wasn't organized. It was a beautiful, you know, galaxy of stars and and different constellations and different ways of being tethered together. That was much more complex than, let's say, the inside of a circuit board with folders and files and this and that. What did you think about that? I imagine that's if we were to like open up a folder that was that like within the human mind, I feel like that's what that would look like. Because mm-hmm. our thoughts aren't organized. Our thoughts right. are usually tied to different thoughts and different, like, different parts of the brain. So, like, the way he's, like, navigating all of Yang's memories, it's like he's, like, searching someone's brain. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not neat. It's not categorized. There's a range of emotions. And I think Jake, you know, at one point, he kind of gets consumed. Yeah, he, you know, he gets consumed. He tracks down Yang's previous family, who it turns out only had him for like a day or something because he malfunctioned. Um, he tracks down Ada, which is, you know, for the majority of the movie, this mysterious woman that Yang seems to have some sort of relationship with, but we don't know what that relationship looked like necessarily until later. Yeah, I don't know. I there there's like so many scenes that were just kind of like thought inducing in, in that way, you know, because we later find out that Ada is a clone. Yeah, right. Um, a clone of her great aunt, which we are led to believe that Yang was actually in love with. We wonder for Yang, he found Ada. And he kept returning to her coffee shop as a regular customer and buying coffee and a pastry, even though the dude can't really eat, nor does it do anything for him, uh, because he wanted to keep seeing her. This isn't spelled out, you know, because again, a lot of things in this movie are less up for interpretation, but we wonder, like, did he seek Ada out because there was kind of this comfort and familiarity for him? Uh, did it make him feel more human? Are these the things that make us feel human, you know? And like, you just, you wonder, because up until that point, you could maybe safely say that Aang is following his programming. But the fact that he had kept Ada a secret from his family and continued to see her so somewhat behind their backs, I guess you could say, it means he had a level of autonomy. He had a level of like, agency a level of like doing his own thing because he wanted to and that can't be programmed into someone can it one thing that like struck me too is like by the end of the film i'm just heartbroken that yang is pretty much gone if there was nothing there if he was like this soulless robot i don't think i would have felt that i do see that he has a some degree of agency i do think he feels Maybe he doesn't know how to articulate or understand it because that's not part of his programming. And like you said, the fact that he kept going back to Ada without like, you know, letting his current family know that that shows that there's some kind of like feeling. And even if it's like just comfort and familiarity, it's like, would a simple piece of machinery feel that? Exactly. And I was also thinking about, um, we kind of already talked about, you know, that really heartwarming scene where he kind of reassures Mika, you know, that, that these are her parents and describes it through, through plants, which I appreciated. 
but he also like he has a butterfly collection and he thinks he thinks things are beautiful you know and he collects something that he doesn't like I don't think that it was in his programming to start doing this you know this wasn't something that he had to do I think it's maybe something that he picked up yeah he just ended up liking um so that's another aspect like maybe of being human like we collect little things that we like and that's so endearing yeah it's like such endearing characteristics of humans you know it has typical elements of the sci-fi you know genre but at the same time it just completely obliterates any expectations that you might have and it does so in such a beautiful way that really speaks to kind of these deeper things yeah you know and Um, however one comes out of it like I do feel like at, at the end of the day, it is a very, very human story. Exactly. And that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways, that's what makes it unsettling. Yeah. You know, it is very human. And when we're faced with something that depicts humanity on screen, we get uncomfortable because it's like, dang, you know? Yeah. And using some something that's not typically viewed as human to tell that story, too. For anyone who hasn't had a chance to see this movie yet, it's currently playing on Showtime. Uh, that's yes. how I saw it. It's I highly, highly recommend it. It's fantastic. I think maybe to close out our discussion of just like the film before we kind of move into the next segment, I was thinking about these ideas of, you know, depictions of humanity that we were just talking about and something really interesting that I read, which... Caroline Sai actually pointed out in her film review for Film Days is, quote, that there's also the fact that the real people of After Yang are not unlike robots themselves, speaking in a strange, affected monotone. And she thinks that Konganda collapses the distance between human and robot, imbuing Yang with such humanity, but also muting the intensity of the characters who are supposedly more strictly human resulting in this slightly bizarre mumbled effect. And I didn't even think about that until I read that because it's so true. Yes. And what I what that makes me think of, too, is like we talk about machines being programmed, but in a way like we're programmed like exactly we we the way we learn the who we interact with that is programming us. So it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think we kind of see this with I think this might actually might have been one of my favorite scenes in the movies, but there was this instance where Kyra and Yang discuss death and afterlife. Yeah. And it's a very somber, you know, even even the shooting style itself, like it's very intimate. It's soft. The lighting is soft. Very emotional, kind of intimate thing where Kyra asks Yang, do you believe the end is the beginning? And Yang replies, I don't know. I'm not programmed that way. And then there's kind of a pause and he asks Kyra, do you? And she replies, again, in this monotone kind of unfeeling type of way that Caroline Tsai points out. Um, She says, sometimes I think humans are programmed to think like that, but I don't know if it's in our best interest. And Yang kind of, you know, the the conversation continues and Yang says he's fine if there's nothing after death or perhaps I'm programmed that way and Kyra asked him you know does that make you sad 
And at this point, we actually see Yang tearing up. And he says, there's not something without nothing. And we're kind of kind of left to interpret, you know, what all of that means. But like, again, I think here in this moment, we kind of see again, this very unsettling struggle with our anxieties about ourselves as humans being reflected onto technology with, you know, that daunting question, like you said, are we really that different? Yeah. And, you know, kind of how we discussed earlier in the episode, we program robots to have this primary directive of protecting human life because we're afraid that they might be too human and have a primary directive of self-preservation, which, you know, arguably we do. Wow. Actually, hold on. Before we move on, two two things. Sure. Um, what did you think about those cars? Uh... Those, like, self-driving cars, right, who assumingly are very just self-driving and they kind of look like a pod and there's plants inside of them. Yeah, I guess that's... If that's what cars look like in the future, I'm not mad. I liked that. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was super cool. And just like those little details that kind of shift around, I think, from movie to movie that kind of reimagines what we think cars look like. Because if you remember in the Jetsons, we were supposed to have flying cars by now. We were cheated of flying cars. (laughs) Yeah, we were. And also, I think, reflecting back on like all the funny parts in everything everywhere all at once you know what was hilarious in this movie the family dance competition yes <laughs> that was funny that was hilarious i loved that and i can imagine like that's something that i think exists now uh, but also it makes for such a delightful scene until the very end of it right exactly yeah but yeah i i, I felt like that kind of had that style that we saw in everything everywhere all at once where it's like everything's sad but also here are hot dog fingers yeah (laughs) it's a good way to start off the movie too because that's like the entire opening credit sequence i believe yeah yeah Yeah, it was it was really well done yeah i want to ask you a bunch of questions i want to have them answered immediately we did have a few questions uh they're all from the same person this is uh where is ralph on instagram with underscores uh between the words uh let's see they are not particularly related to the discussion but i don't make that a requirement would you ever watch a play at the movies not an adaptation for the screen but an actual play um yeah absolutely i mean i feel like maybe this has fallen out of like trend with like maybe you know technological advancement but like people always used to go to the theater and see, you know, live action productions. Oh, yeah. Um, And I think that it's quickly become one of those things like the CD, the videotape or the record, for example, that, you know, is going to be kind of this nostalgic thing that we yearn for now that we have everything available at our fingertips digitally. So I mean, I would definitely do that. And I would love for it to be maybe more of a mainstream thing because I think, you know, there's a lot of community theaters, there's a lot of different places that you can actively seek out and see these things, but they're not as mainstream as prime time as they were once in society. Um, But I think that there's definitely some charm to it. And yeah, I love the idea of doing that. I've done it before. I know Fathom events will sometimes take 
a major musical and like do a special event where they broadcast it on a movie theater screen. Uh, that's how I watched uh, Memphis, the Broadway musical. Mm -hmm. um, I saw the 25th anniversary concert special for Les Miserables. Um, okay. I would love to see more of that. Um, I, we're seeing a lot more on streaming services now uh, with uh, Hamilton being on Disney Plus. Uh, Come From Away is now on Apple TV Plus. And if you donate to PBS at all, their streaming service, you have access to great performances, which is a treasure trove of like live stage performances. Uh, I watched Uncle Vanya recently, which was really good. Um, their, Kinky Boots is on there. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of good stuff on there that you you only need to do donate like five bucks a month, but then you have access to all of this great, this great content that's on. And, you know, we should be su uh, supporting public broadcasting anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Another question I got was, how do you feel about Disney releasing movies on Disney Plus and theaters simultaneously? I don't feel like they do that as much anymore, especially after the whole Black Widow incident. <laughs> in during when we were in a um, shelter in place i feel like it was a good idea right um i didn't necessarily pay for the paid premium subscription except for raya and the last dragon that's the only time i did that and i don't regret that but um also, other services will do this, too. I know Peacock will still release, like, a universal film while it's still in theaters. Uh, mm -hmm. Most recently, they did that with Firestarter. I feel like what they've been doing lately is we don't have a lot of confidence this is going to do well in theaters, so let's just throw it on the streaming service to maybe boost its... make sure people know about it. <laughs> right. Um, Paramount will do that, like, Warner Brothers, I think they learned a lesson from doing that with all their movies. I think that's done. Right. If it's done strategically, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I think like you mentioned, I think that whole idea kind of came out of the pandemic itself. Like a lot of things have changed because of that. But it was the idea that we would still allow people to see this movie premiere in the comfort of their own homes while they are you know, sheltering, sheltering in place. Yeah. Um, and so it's a product of that. Um, and so in that respect, I do think it's a good idea. But like you said, I think it's also situational, you know, and I know that A24 also actually has a screening room that you're able to pay for and you're able to see movies that had just come out in theaters for like a bit more I've used that money. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've used that too before. How, so how I saw Minari. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, I think there's there's benefits and like you said, there's obviously some downsides to it, but yeah, I don't know that it's it's like a black or white answer. Yeah. This. I mean it's gonna it ties into the other question the last question he asked, which is what kind of films are acceptable acceptable to watch on streaming as opposed to in a theater? I think okay. about, I think it was like 10 years ago. This was, this has actually become weirdly prophetic now. Uh, Steven Spielberg and I think George Lucas, uh, they wrote this piece about like how soon movies are going to be a thing where you're going to get like major tent poles released in theaters, but like a majority of them are going to be streaming. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe they didn't use streaming, but like, made for tv video on demand that sort of thing 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think they were wrong. I think we're seeing that now. No, I think so too. And I mean, I would add that like, there's always a different, more immersive experience when you see a movie in a theater because everything's louder. Sometimes it shakes. Sometimes, you know, like you hear things from all around you. It's darker. Like it, it, there's a different, I want to say that like bodily and mental effect when you're in a theater and kind of just connecting with the screen and all these things are going on around you as opposed to like me sitting on my couch and watching it off my 32 inch TV, you know? Like that that's true. My favorite movie of all time, Casablanca, I've seen it countless times, but then I went to go see an anniversary presentation in a theater with a full audience. And that was a completely different experience for that movie. Like I started like every, like every time someone laughs at something that's funny, that's like an infectious laughter that just kind of like, it makes you enjoy it even more. So I can see it both ways. I do enjoy going to places like um, the Frida cinema in Santa Ana yes they they do a lot of older films and when you're watching these like with an audience this is like an experience that like i highly recommend if or yeah there's definitely like a communal experience too and kind of having strangers around you share in you know these emotions that the film produces yeah um this is kind of a not super related example, but I went to see like the the last Spider-Man where like all three of them are like their multiverses cross or something. Yeah. And I remember when Daredevil came on the screen, everyone clapped and it was just like this like super like cool communal experience to where like, damn, Matt Murdock is not dead. There he is. And like everyone was just super excited to see him, you know? Yeah. Uh- so... Yeah, th- that does get, like, made fun of a lot, but I think that's a very beautiful thing, to be I honest. think so, too. Yeah, let people enjoy things. Yes. In life, yeah. Yeah, as long as it's not, like, toxic. <laughs> it's me taking the bull by the horns. That's how I handle my business. It's a metaphor. I get it. But that actually happened, though. Uh, so our rotating segment this week, I, uh, I actually came up with a brand new one, which I'm calling Wrong Answers Only, uh in the production notes i'm going to link uh a picture of the poster and uh we will the whole concept of this is we're going to try to guess the plot of the movie based on the poster alone okay cool so i took your suggestion and i chose a very obscure poorly received movie poster (laughs) oh yes let's um that's a fairly old from the 70s so I'm going to share it with, I'm going to share my screen with you so you can take a look at it. And then I want you to guess what the plot of this movie is. Can you see that? Oh, okay. All right. So again, there's going to be a version of this that we're, that's going to be linked on the show notes. It's a film called Future World. Uh, mm. Uh, what some what looks like an android machine type person has like a face that he's putting on. Uh, the tagline is, is this you or are you you? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> right. <laughs> where you can't, future world, where you can't tell the mortals from the machines, dot, dot, dot. Even when you look in the mirror. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, um, 
judging by the way his face is shaped as he's putting it on, I'm going to guess uh, he is a theater performer. Um, you know, the, the whole thing. He's putting on the sad face mask. Mm-hmm. Because he has a happy face mask as well, but he's doing the sad one. The one that's okay. about to cry. Uh, he has these very thick gloves on. I'm assuming it's either very cold or, you know what, this is future world. Uh, no, no, you know what, that doesn't look like that's his hand. That could be someone else's hands. And also, I think he's wearing like a full-on suit. Do you see that? There's like a tie and oh yeah, like a coat jacket over it. Yeah. Um, is that a white coat? Is he maybe a doctor? I think that's a white coat. Yeah, that's a choice. That's a fashion choice. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, and let's see, is this you or are you you? Well, mm. that's that's a big question, to be honest. Um, I don't think that's me. I'm going to be honest that yeah. eh, he's got he's got the same hair color and stuff, but I don't know if I would style my hair that way. Um, that face doesn't quite resemble me. I don't think it does. Uh, someone could disagree with me on that, but um, no, I think I think I'm pretty sure I'm me. What do you think? I think so too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I chose this poster just because obviously, yeah, it's weird. And it's like, if you don't know anything about the background of the movie, you're kind of just like, you're enticed, I think. Yeah. Um, um, and I also chose it because, you know, this man appears to be human, but deep down, he has this like circuit board underneath his face which is similar to someone else that we talked about to today. So that is like, true. Seems like, yeah, something connecting. So do you have any other wrong answers about this movie before I tell you what it's about? <laughs> um, well, Yule Brenner is in it. This is, mm-hmm. hasn't he played a robot in a different movie? Wasn't he, uh, wasn't he in Westworld? I believe he was. Huh. Yes. I guess that, like, towards his later career, that was just something he wanted to do. Uh, yeah, I think I'm out of wrong answers. Cool. So you actually kind of nailed it. Um, Future World, this movie came out in 1976, and it is the poorly received sequel to the 1973 movie Westworld. Okay. I didn't know there was a sequel. <laughs> right. And, and honestly... I don't know that anyone needs to know about the sequel, but um, <laughs> Westworld, as we know, was more recently adopted into a show. I believe that's HBO. Is that right? Yeah. And but anyways, the original movie was the original movie Westworld, which came out in 73, was about amusement park robots that became deadly after this computer virus kind of causes a breakdown in their programming and they start to take over. And Future World, which came out in 1976, um, takes place two years after this fiasco. And at this point, they've reopened the park. Oh, okay. Um, And so, you know, the public is still very weary of the robot, you know, rampage. And the corporation behind the theme park Future World called Delos, um, they want to kind of ease people's anxieties and fears through kind of positive publicity. And so they invite these two reporters to come and review the park. And these two reporters actually end up uncovering that 
bad things are still taking place. And they find out that the Delos Corporation is actually caught making Android copies of world leaders. It's insane. Sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think, you know, Westworld was, was a really good movie. Um, I haven't seen Future World yet, um, but honestly, at this point, I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of interested in watching it. I'm I'm, it I'm almost intrigued. Creepy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I believe I was like about to say like this like has Jurassic Park vibes, and then I realized something <laughs> I knew beforehand that Michael Crichton, what who wrote Jurassic Park, is also the writer director of the original Westworld. No way, really? Yeah. Well, let me make sure because let me just do a quick thing here. Yeah, no, Sam Michael Crichton. I just wanted to make yeah. sure it wasn't like a person with the same name. <laughs> yeah, because I didn't even think about that. It's literally pretty much the same basic storyline. <laughs> yeah, except instead of dinosaurs, it's robots. <laughs> robots, yeah. Um, but yeah, anyways, I thought this was, you know, interesting. And it kind of also reflects, you know, these anxieties that we've been talking about. Um, because it kind of reveals this like human desire for money and power, even if it comes at the expense of the safety of park goers. Um, and I think this is one of those cautionary tales where we see why we had to program robots with those three laws yes. that I was talking about earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check that one out. I do need to see the original Westworld as well, to be honest. I have not yet. It's definitely on the list. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe a double feature someday. This yeah. was fun. I'm going to I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> this yeah, uh, so I, I will send you all the sources that I mentioned for yes. the reading so that you can link that in there. And then I'll also send you um, this poster in the same email so that you Perfect. have everything ready. All right. Uh, was there anything you would like to plug today? Any social media, any like information or something you're working on? Um, well, so, you know, as a scholar of technology, my public facing digital footprint remains intentionally small, Chris, because I know too much. Yes. <laughs> Things work. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like my email will be included in the episode description alongside some of these readings. And I'm always happy to kind of connect and collaborate with people who either share these interests or kind of just, you know, want to learn more. Um, like kind of like our collaboration, I think was really cool because you're like a film expert, you know, and you've seen all these films and you have like all of these cool insights. And then I feel like that partnered well with kind of just like these random historical you know, things that actually don't end up being very random at all. They're all very intentional um, to kind of explain the importance of some of the aspects of films that I don't think the general public will catch on to right away. Yeah, I wanted to do this one because like um, art, art does not exist in a vacuum. When people complain about like, oh, I like this before it got political, which that's a bad faith argument to begin with. It should never be engaged right. with. Um, it's... It's a dog whistle for racism, but uh, no, exactly. Uh, everything is political. Even if they don't mean to make it political, we are so informed by our worldview, our everything around us that it's going to end up in our work no matter what. Yeah, I so, think so too. So yeah, this and After Yang is an excellent example of that. So thank you, thank you for the recommendation. Uh, it was I love the movie. 
Uh, and this was a really fun episode. Thank you so much uh, for everyone listening at home. Uh, follow follow us on social media. This is uh, In a Place Like This podcast on uh, Instagram and In a Pod Like This on Twitter. Um, thank you, Julia, for being my guest today. And for everyone at home, I hope you are not just entertained, but somehow reborn together.